Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for February 10th, 2023. I'm Joy LaClaire. We have a very full show for you today. Returning for the full hour is Paolo Freire, Distinguished Scholar in Critical Pedagogy and Chair for Scholarship in the Public Interest at McMaster University, author and public intellectual Henry Giroux. He has written more than 56 books since his first book, Ideology, Culture, and the Process of Schooling, was published in 1981. And he's been generous with us with his time over the years as he's published books such as Zombie Politics in the Age of Casino Capitalism, Disposable Youth, Racialized Memories, and the Culture of Cruelty, The Violence of Organized Forgetting, Thinking Beyond America's Disimagination Machine, Disposable Futures, The Seduction of Violence in the Age of Spectacle, and America at War with Itself. His latest book is Insurrections, Education in an Age of Counter-Revolutionary Politics, just published by Bloomsbury Press. We spoke with Henry Giroux via Skype on February 8, 2023, about the multiple crises with which we are faced. Welcome back to Forthright Radio, Professor Henry Giroux. Thank you for joining us again. Oh, it's a pleasure, Joy. Henry, my mind is holding so many things as we begin our conversation. Book ended by news of a miraculous birth on February 6, 2023, amid the devastation of the earthquake in Turkey and the death of civil rights and anti-war activist David Harris on that same day in California. The infant girl was born as her family of Syrian refugees lay dead and dying, surviving under the rubble despite the freezing cold and her mother's death with her umbilical cord still attached. David Harris at his home in Mill Valley, California, at the age of 76 from lung cancer. What comes to mind are the images of tectonic forces pushing against each other in seemingly static resistance, but actually accumulating energy below the surface, building and building until a point is reached in which it simply must be released. It's a process that never ends. And it seems to me that David Harris's resistance to the tectonic forces of militarism in the Vietnam War and white supremacy is part of an analogous process. Although the military no longer has an active draft since 1973 in the United States, with a few exceptions, all men ages 18 to 25 who are under U.S. citizenship or immigrants are still required to register with the Selective Service within 30 days of turning 18 or arriving in the U.S. And the violence, whether physical or otherwise, of white supremacy is all too evident and appears to be growing, not just in the U.S., but elsewhere in the world, as evidence of the rise of authoritarian extremism that is moving into outright fascism. Now, Henry, you have spent decades analyzing and warning us about this, and we are so grateful to you for helping to make us aware of the processes by which civilized nations descend into precarity and barbarity. 
Let's begin by explaining just what is meant by fascism and why it's not just the German experience of the 20th century. I think when we talk about fascism, we're talking about certain attributes that are relatively distinctive that tend to emerge at different moments in different forms. They crystallize into different forms. And I'm particularly thinking about, to say the very least, the one that really strikes me as the most prominent, and that is the call for racial cleansing and racial purity and the rise of of white supremacy. It seems to me that you couple that with an increasing militarization of everyday life in which social problems are increasingly criminalized as opposed to addressed, you begin to see this language of dehumanization emerging in which we can only deal with friend-enemy distinctions. You begin to see a culture in which there's a collapse between reason and misinformation. You begin to hear a discourse in which demagogues make the claim that they can only solve the problem and nobody else. You see a massive kind of anti-intellectualism that sweeps over the culture. And these are only some of the issues. I think you put all of these together, coupled with, of course, an emerging culture of cruelty and lies, and you begin to see something. You begin to see echoes of history in which all of this, when it comes together, basically moves from a kind of assault on human dignity and any notion of democratic values to a censorship of ideas to a basically a criminalization of bodies. And basically, it ends up in the camps. It ends up in the destruction of huge wraths of people who are no longer considered worthy of either life or citizenship. And so you have this narrowing of the notion of inclusion surrounded by this blanket, this blossoming of the language of hate, objectification and dehumanization. And you're in the midst of fascism. And I I think that that's what we're seeing in many places all over the world. And we're seeing it emerge in a way that's unapologetic. It makes no claim to believe in democracy at all. And as a matter of fact, the current term for fascism now is a belief in what they call illiberal democracy. So coupled with, of course, the massive assault that's taking a place in in all these institutions that support any vestige of critical thinking. So as to shut down dissent and censorship, we see it, of course, with DeSantis, we see it with Abbott in Texas, and we see it in, in Idaho and a number of other states. So I guess that when you put all this together, it's pretty hard not to acknowledge that fascism is on the rise and that we're in the midst of a a crisis of, of civilization, a crisis of civic culture and certainly a crisis of democracy. It seems to me that in the current version that we're experiencing in the United States, there has been an expropriation of religion and that that is being used to warrant some of the mobilization and organization around what you call the cruelty of these things. And it's manifesting in, on the one hand, the taking the quote-unquote moral high ground, and at the same time, embracing deregulation, less government interference in our lives, and things like that. And then on the other hand, hyperdrive regulation of women's bodies, for example, in terms of their reproductive potentials. And most recently, this extreme gender regulation that we're experiencing in many places in the United States, including the state of Montana, as we speak. Why is that? How can that be? And and how can these very well-organized forces hold those two things at the same time? I'm not so sure there's a contradiction here. I think that the, the attempt 
on one level to claim you want smaller government, you have to inject in, in the culture a kind of higher morality. These are simply code in many ways for exercising power that's really the opposite of the kind of values that I think particularly the religious right, the white Christian nationalists are arguing for. What they see and what they've latched onto are two things that it seems to me are crucial to understand, or maybe three. One is is that they are enormously in favor of outlawing abortion and will do anything to basically get that passed through. And that's been going on for since the 1960s. Secondly, it, it seems to me you have a counter-revolution taking place in this country. And that revolution is a revolution against the 60s and against the expanding possibility of democracy for multiple groups. And it seems to me that these evangelicals, that's the last thing they want. A democracy is not in their interest. They believe in hierarchies. They believe in oligarchies. They believe in misogyny. So it, it seems to me they're in tune with that logic. Thirdly, it seems to me there's something else going on, and that is that this rising fascism appeals very provocatively to what I call the politics of disposability and the politics of disappearance. And I think that what that means is that certain groups, when they become unworthy, whether we're talking about youth, whether we're talking about women who should be in their place, whether we're talking about blacks, brown people, immigrants who don't fit into this white Christian nationalist view of the world. This is a, a view of religion that is absolutely entrenched in a kind of almost out of control nationalism. The celebration of, of a, a kind of masculine exceptionalism that runs through the culture. And so I, I think that they have found the perfect party to basically employ those, those attributes and no longer care about the contradiction. I mean, your argument seems to suggest that the morality that we associate with certain forms of organized spirituality have some meaning. Well, they don't have any meaning for these groups. That argument has collapsed. That argument has now given way to what I would call the raw power of disposability, the raw power of exclusion, the raw power of racial cleansing, the raw power of censorship. This is about power. This is about putting people in office who can impose and collapse. And I think this is the issue, who can collapse the line between religion and the state. They want a religious state. They want a theocracy. All right-wing movements are basically theocratic in one way or another, either in their offhanded support for oligarchic religions or in their taking on a kind of regressive appeal to spirituality that reinforces massive forms of misogyny and equality and subordination. You're calling this a counter-revolution to the 1960s. It also occurs to me that at least some of this is coming from an awareness of the precarity that we live in, whether it's a climate crisis or this whole thing with artificial intelligence. I mean, it was bad enough that you could manipulate video and audio things to distort or create truth on truth. But now, <laughs> what seemed to be previously safe employment with this chat GPT stuff is no longer safe. And it reminds me of the situation at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution when craftspeople were absolutely displaced by machines. 
Do you think that that is part of the attraction of these kind of uh, fascist forces to people who are experiencing this, whether they're aware of it or not? And the inflation and COVID and all that kind of stuff doesn't help either. There are a lot of things in that question. First of all, when you look at the last four or five years, what you have is a crisis in which government stepped in and amplified two things. One, the power of control over people's lives, and secondly, the ability to trade in fear. In some cases, of course, particularly under Biden, there was an attempt to reverse some of that and really treat this as a medical issue. But we've experienced a political tsunami across the world with respect to the pandemic, and it hasn't been good. And it's revealed enormous kinds of inequality. It's revealed the collapse of public health systems. It's made clear that the emphasis on government responsibility has given way to what I would call market sovereignty, and that the market really is the only force that should in some way bear down on how societies are shaped. And I think the other side of this is that the current crisis that we're witnessing, the crisis in civic values, the crisis in civic culture, is really reinforced by what I would call the politics of the spectacle. When you talk about the rise of AI, or you talk about the bots, or you talk about this increasing use of technology, I think we have to situate it in three ways. We have to situate it as part of the spectacle, it's distracting, and it tries to take on the venue of being entertaining. Secondly, we're witnessing a full-fledged attack on agency. Basically, let's use the right term, agency, the ability of people to think critically, to gain control over the conditions that bear down on their lives, and to collectively resist in some way these ongoing multiple registers of domination. Thirdly, you combine the spectacle with this tsunami of fear, with this attack on education, and what we're witnessing in the current moment as part of this current revolution is a massive attempt at depoliticization to basically depoliticize people, i.e. in ways that allow them to forget, if I may use that term, or repress, or not think about the importance of democracy, democratic values, what it takes to sustain that, and what the forces are that are at work that are attacking a more radical socialist notion of democracy. Look at some of the literature that we're seeing emerge from people like DeSantis and people like Trump or the Moms for Liberty stuff. It's infused with a kind of McCarthyism that I've never seen before. Leftists are communists. We're going after the Marxists. The critical race theory is really about Marxism. I mean, it's just quite amazing that all of a sudden in each month we get a clearer look at who the enemy really is here. And the enemy basically is the spirit of 68. The enemy is democratic socialism. It's the call for for basically democratizing universities, democratizing the welfare state, offering social provisions, thinking about free education, free health care. These are simply dismissed as communist ideas or, in, in a better note, as socialist ideas. But this is what we're witnessing. This is a political revolution. Let's be clear here in the name of fascism. And fascism has always taken as its first enemy people on the left. And then it moves on to the Jews, of course, to the blacks, to the brown, to the disabled, those who don't fit into this notion of racial purity and white supremacy, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, anti-intellectual who really needs to be given a full course, them and their children, in patriotic education. 
Henry, perhaps I'm not understanding your use of the term depoliticization properly. I agree with everything you just said, but what I'm seeing is a mobilization of people against the values that were being promulgated as a result of the 60s towards more humanity, towards more democracy and all that. They're now being mobilized to show up at school board meetings with a bunch of shibboleths, owning the libs, summarizing, I don't really know what in the term woke. What I'm seeing, very effective mobilization, probably because of the internet, that I don't really see parallels with in, let's say, the left. I hate to use terms left, right. They're so vague, but I'm not sure what other way to put it in shorthand. I know that there are forces out there like Black Lives Matter and things like that, but they're just not as evident. And this brings up your criticisms of the media, and I think this may be why they're less visible. I think there are a couple of things here. When I talk about depoliticization, I'm not talking about indoctrination. Depoliticization, I I think these are two different things. Depoliticization empties politics out and takes away the conditions for people to really be self-determining forces who can critically act in ways to address real issues in the world, issues that basically expand the meaning of democracy rather than empty it out. People who are propagandized and people who are indoctrinated uh, are basically depoliticized because they've given over their agency to demagogues and they follow scripts. They're like robots. It doesn't mean that they're not in the political sphere. It means that they emptied the political sphere of any substance that would have anything to do with enlarging, expanding uh, the meaning of democracy itself. So let's clear that up. I think the other question about what is happening with the media is, is really fundamentally a different kind of question and a very important question. Because the media has become, the corporate media, has become a disimagination machine. You know, I've used this term before. We've talked about this. We live in an image-based culture, but it's not enough to say it's a culture of the spectacle. It's not enough to say it's a culture of consumerism. It's not enough to say it's a culture that basically trades in, in the entertainment of violence which it does. It does all of those things. It's not a culture that simply celebrates uh, celebrities. It's a culture that basically so narrows the purview of what it means to live in a society in which people are interconnected around values of equity, around values of, of compassion, around values of joy, around values of giving, that basically you have to understand this media not just in terms of its ideological educational function, and I really stress its educational function. These are basically educational machines. That's what they are. They're ideological machines, as Althusser once said. That's what they are. But I think more importantly, we have to talk about the concentration of power that is manifest in the media. When five companies control basically 95% of all the media in the United States, you're you're really talking about the power of finance capital to engage in the production of a mass consciousness and mass forms of subjectivity, mass forms of identity that now correlate with what we would call the fascist subject, racist, white supremacist, more concerned about basically benefiting the rich, No concern for the social welfare state, no concern for critical thinking, no concern whatsoever for the common good, but most importantly, a deep-seated hatred of the social contract. Let's get to our exhibit number one in terms of how this is accelerating 
and manifesting in our country. We could either go to Texas, or I think it's more blatant in Florida with the machinations of Ron DeSantis with his Republican majority in the legislature in Florida. I'm a gog. Over the last year or more, he's done so many different things. And I keep thinking, well, someone's going to stop this. Someone's going to see where this is leading. And we've been here before with the earlier McCarthyism. We're, <laughs> we're dealing with the new Speaker of the House, McCarthy. So now we have to clarify which McCarthy we're talking about. But where do you want to begin with Ron DeSantis, Henry Giroux? <laughs> I think we should begin with something very crucial, and that is what exactly ties together all of the kinds of fascistic policies that he's basically putting into play, whether it be the elimination of tenure, whether it be this, the fact that you can't speak about racism and systemic racism or slavery in classrooms in ways that would make people uncomfortable, or the attack on transgender, again, a, attempt to completely whitewash what history looks like in order to serve what we would call the ends of, I, I love this term, patriotic education. It, it goes on and on. The thing that I find most depressing that doesn't tie in or often connect, let's say, what DeSantis is doing with the death of Tyree Nichols or with the assaults on women's reproductive rights and that is the death of historical consciousness. I mean, it seems to me that we're in the midst of a politics of disappearance that covers many registers and connects a lot of dots. I don't believe that DeSantis was directly responsible for Tyree Nichols' death, but I think that what he's doing plays a part in both erasing a history of violence against black and brown people that would give us some understanding of how to address this problem by looking at its long legacy from maybe the elimination of indigenous populations and slavery to Jim Crow, to the lynching of people even after Jim Crow ended, and to try to come to grips with that violence and what it means in racial and economic terms. I also think that what we are seeing happening with DeSantis is the creation of an ecological mindset in which the past all of a sudden no longer exist, or it gets rewritten in ways that make no sense whatsoever, but simply reinforce a fascist kind of logic. So it's this attack on memory, historical consciousness, that produces a kind of moral blindness, an erasure of the possibility of collective moral witnessing that seems to me to be creating what I would call a formative culture of hate, lies, and bigotry that ties all of this together. This is a massive educational process that's going on. It's a process of what I would call both erasure, disappearance, and a process of disposability. And all of these are linked. And until we can connect these dots, we're not going to get it. All we're going to do is respond to specific laws. Oh, the attack on critical race theory, that's terrible. Of course it's terrible. 
I mean, it's terrible because it even educates white kids to be stupid so that they can't even understand what racism is to be able to protect themselves against being contacted by white supremacists to play video games. And all of a sudden they're involved in a, a full fledged white form of supremacy in which they become full fledged racist. I mean, it's not even at that level as horrible as that is. We also have to understand how does that link up? To the attack on women. How does that link up to the attack on all public institutions, on Disney or, or the Tampa Bay or the sports teams that disagree? I mean, this is really a set of interconnected policies that basically are using the erasure of memory and the power of education and the use of state terror to put into place a political and economic formation that we have not seen since the 1930s or maybe even later, the 70s in Argentina and in Chile, and then recently in Brazil, until Lula was elected. You've got to connect the dots here. As long as we exist in a politics of disconnection and treat these things individually and just step back and say, oh my God, this is really terrible. We don't get it. We don't get it. And I think that the American public is going to wake up and start to realize how these different pieces fit together and what they mean in terms of the emergency that we now face. We, the United States has never been a democracy, but it seems to me that we always made an appeal to the ideals of democracy. For the first time in history, all of a sudden, there is a massive political movement in the center of power saying that democracy is doesn't work. It's too messy. We need strong men. We need authoritarians. And we need to get rid of all those leftists, socialists, Marxists, communists, and others who make a false claim to social justice and economic equality. They need to be gotten rid of. I mean, the next step is one that I don't want to think about because the next step is unspeakable. What is the next step that you say is unspeakable? Can you speak it? I think the next step would be massive jailings. I think the next step would be something like we see in countries like Iran and we see in Hungary. There would be expulsions. There would be people who would be forced to leave the country. And ultimately, we know where that goes. Ultimately, it would result in in deaths and imprisonments, everything that mocks the worst registers and dimensions of an authoritarian society. Look, we have people in this Congress right now who trade in overt violence, who suggest their enemies should be shot and killed, who, when they see Pelosi's husband attack, turn it into a joke and claim that it was probably a gay man who had tried to you know, break into the house because Pelosi is, is gay. Her husband was, I mean, it exceeds any sense of not only understanding, it exceeds any sense of rationality. And I think that when evil wraps itself in that form of irrationality and ties that kind of ignorance directly to the pursuit of power, we have a crisis. And that's a serious crisis. And that's a crisis in which questions of social responsibility, questions of ethics, questions of justice just simply disappear. They disappear. The incidences of stochastic violence in the United States are definitely increasing. It can be documented for quite a long time, but particularly since the election of Barack Obama. So that brings up the white supremacist aspect of it. And it occurs to me that this great replacement theory 
in a certain sense, kind of makes sense because white supremacy was responsible for replacements historically, namely the Native Americans. So the knowledge is there that it can happen, and the fear is that it will come back on people of European descent, shall we say, and they're afraid of that. And their response is the same as it had been when they were committing genocide on the indigenous people of the continent. And this isn't just the United States, this is both North and South America with the Europeans. But we're at a period in history with demographics being what they are, that this has become a very powerful force of fear perpetrating what you're now talking about with the politics of cruelty. White replacement theory is really code, of course. It's code for doing what all authoritarians do, and that is they always paint their followers as victims. And it seems to me they then expand that logic in ways that have no bearing on the truth whatsoever. Brown and black people basically are going to take our jobs. White people are facing potential genocide. Uh, White people basically are under siege. And so it goes. I think that that speaks to two things. It speaks to a crisis of legitimation, meaning that the neoliberal appeal to democracy doesn't work anymore. People aren't being lifted up. All boats aren't rising. There's a massive crisis around inequality. The planet is being destroyed. You know, all of this points to the crisis of capitalism. And I think that white replacement theory is nothing more than a diversion for two things. It's a diversion to reinforce notions of white supremacy, and it's a diversion from looking at capitalism and realizing that it's finally morphed into its endpoint, and that endpoint is fascism. It now blames blacks, it now blames Jews, it now blames brown people, it now blames immigrants for the basic problems that the country is facing. So I I think when we expand that notion of white replacement theory and recognize that it, A, is the outgrowth of a crisis, and B, is a form of legitimation to hide that crisis, we begin to understand it has a much broader parameter than simply a kind of silly argument about victimization. This is a well-funded, well-dispersed ideological construct, and it serves many, many purposes. And it's not just about white replacement theory. It's about the legitimation of fascism and the maintenance of capitalism in its most absolutely savage, and it would seem to me, corrupt forms. You're bringing up the point about how it's well-funded. It reminds me of the period with the rise of the Nazi party in Germany and the collaboration between the oligarchs of that era thinking they could control the situation, and it got completely out of hand. Do you see any parallels with the foolishness of the oligarchs today unleashing these forces and thinking they can control them? No, I don't. I I think they're far more evil and they're far more organized and they're far more, it it, it seems to me, willing to sacrifice the planet, if not anybody who doesn't believe in corporate financial rule. They know exactly what they're doing. And they know exactly who they're supporting. The language is too blatant. It's too obvious in terms of its anti-intellectualism. It's assault on education. It's assault on any civic institution that gives people the opportunity to have a, a dignified life. Any institution that rails against 
in some way questions of inequality. What you have here is what one of my favorite authors once called the age of monsters. These are monsters. This is evil incarnate in a form of corporate financial rule. This is capitalism on steroids. And this is what you get. And there is no apology. They're not disillusioned about what they're The Koch brothers, they're not disillusioned. They know the planet is dying. They know they're contributing to that. We know we've seen the recent reports of Exxon and these other oil companies that are very clear about what they're doing, but hide the reports. Do you think the Koch brothers or Charles Koch doesn't realize what he's doing? Do you, you think he doesn't realize he's a racist? or doesn't realize he's supporting white supremacist groups, or doesn't realize that he'd do anything to maintain the concentration of power in the hands of the petro elites? Of course he does. I think it's ignorant to assume that they're disillusioned. I don't think we understand the nature of the crisis when we make that argument. It's far more severe, far more concentrated, far more thought out, and far more organized than we're willing to admit. Well, you bring up the tactic or whatever you want to call it of miseducating, uneducating the population. And that certainly is being manifest in Florida. As we speak, elementary school and high school bookshelves are either wrapped in yellow caution tape or bared because every book has to go through a vetting to make sure it's not pornographic, obscene, etc. For one thing, there's a whole list of very vague criteria, very few people qualified to do the vetting. So the situation is that books are unavailable. Now, I'm not aware that this has ever happened in the United States before. And It's one of the things that had me running to you, Henry, to try to help me understand what the heck is going on here. Well, I think that what's going on, forgive me, Joy, I don't want to sound simplistic, but this is a recognition that knowledge is dangerous. This is a recognition that you have to confront the evils of a a society as well as its, its great achievements. This is a recognition that in revealing the past, one may have a glimpse of the present. And that we have to do everything we can to make sure that glimpse of the present doesn't take place in ways that challenge the way power is being concentrated to ruin uh, the lives of so many people and how how destructive it can be. (laughs) If I may put it this way, the, the most promising thing that comes out of these attacks, attacks that actually threaten librarians with felony, a felony charge, or teachers with a felony charge of certain books that aren't vetted by the state or in their classroom. What comes out of this is the power of education. I mean, let's, let's all of a sudden recognize that the nature of the suppression and how far-reaching it is and how extreme it is points to the one site that probably represents one of the most radical places where politics can take place. Agency can be shaped. Wow. I mean, if the assault on education is that concentrated and that powerful, what is it about education that they fear? And what is it that we need to do to reinscribe education as an enormously powerful site of resistance that now has to be really taken seriously? Let's be honest. Outside of teachers who are striking, young people who are fighting for for education in a variety of ways, progressives have never taken education seriously. They confuse it with schooling. 
They don't realize it's central to politics, and they don't understand that domination takes on symbolic forms that enact modes of persuasion that change people's consciousness, and that the first moment of liberation comes with literacy. (laughs) It comes with the self-recognition of who we are and what the forces are that are preventing us from becoming what we could become. And that, to me, is what needs to be emphasized. That is what needs to be spoken about outside of simply saying, wow, look at how repressive this is. Isn't this terrible? We need to flip the script on this. And we need to ask, what is it that's so terrible? Why are they so fearful of people thinking critically? Why are they so fearful of people reading books that aren't what Trump calls elements of patriotic education? Why is it that they want to eliminate tenure? Why is it that they want to all of a sudden, in some way, as Trump said, fire people who are deemed radical zealots and Marxists? We've seen this before. Ideas are dangerous. And the sites that produce them and give birth to them and provide the amplification of them are even more dangerous. So I think that's the message we need to be able to articulate. It would appear that the Steve Bannons of the world have learned the lessons of organizing. Uh, He's unabashed in stating that he uses the Leninist concept of cadres, organizing at that level from the school board on up. There's nothing about there's nothing about that that's Leninist. I mean, he's, he's well, he says it is. Well, it doesn't matter. I mean, he he he'd rather say Lenin. He'd rather use refer to Lenin than Hitler. Uh, that's all. Ah, yes. <laughs> I, I mean, the, the the real organizing took place with the stormtroopers with Kristallnacht. We we know that history. I, I mean, this is just another way of coding his own evil in a way to basically slander Marxists. I mean, he knows as much about Lenin as he does about democracy, which is very little. And it, and it seems to me that, yes, people like Bannon have an enormous amount of power, but they only have that power because they're being funded by the corporate elite. That's it. Bannon is a moron. You know, he spouts nonsense, but he has a megaphone. And that megaphone has to be understood within a larger set of connections that tell us less about Bannon and more about a corporate financial elite that now control basically the major cultural apparatuses in the United States. And now they want to control the schools. They don't want to just control the media. They want to completely control public and higher education. They have expanded their reach in terms of what it means to shape a collective fascist culture. They get it. They get something that the progressives and the left don't get. And of course, I, I don't I want I don't want to be too harsh here. They also have the power and the money. And you, you can't forget that. Yes, I think we do forget that sometimes speaking as I I sometimes forget because with that money, they can organize. They can hire people full time to organize at the school board level and have people make the phone calls, make the whatever it is, to have people show up at uh, school board meetings and rant and rave against equity programs and diversity and all of the things that for 40 plus, 50 plus years, we have been organizing to achieve in the schools. And they're demolishing that in a very short while. 
You know, it's interesting that you say that because this conversation started regarding what's happening in this country and how do you understand it and how do you address it? And for the first moment in this conversation, after I mentioned the, the notion of counter-revolution, probably the most important term that should have been mentioned right at the beginning of this conversation is now coming into view, and that's inequality. The scourge of massive inequality under capitalism. And inequality drives everything that you've talked about, basically. It provides the financial resources, it provides the organizations, it reinforces the control of cultural apparatuses, it mobilizes huge amounts of people, and yet we don't want to talk about inequality. And we don't want to talk about its relationship to a dying capitalism and a re-emerging fascism. You cannot talk about those things without linking two things, the counter-revolution and the power of people to implement it. And to talk about the power of people to implement it, you've got to talk about the scourge of inequality in the United States and in other countries. You have to do that. This is a fight to the finish. And if we don't do something about finance capitalism and the concentration of wealth and the ethos of a, of a savage economic system that says that human needs under all costs have to be subordinated to the logic of capital and profit, we're done. It's over. We will never get to the root of the problem. I can't stand people now talking about compassionate capitalism. It just sounds like a completely erroneous association. Capitalism and democracy are not the same thing. They're not the same thing. And we need to come to that understanding if we're going to come to some understanding of how fascism has emerged, how it gains its strength, and what its consequences are. Well, that brings us back to education and the importance of it and why it is being so viciously attacked now, because I'm not aware of any way of accomplishing what you just said, if people are miseducated. And that's precisely why it seems to me we need a couple of things. It's precisely why we need to take seriously these different groups that are mobilizing around education and using education in every way possible, from the Black Lives Movement to the people who are fighting for ecological justice, to the people basically who are fighting to end the, the carceral state in the United States, to various elements of the Black Power Movement, to people who basically are engaged in immigration justice and re women's reproductive rights. These movements have to come together. And they have to do it, the trans movement, they have to do it in ways in which they take the question of education seriously. Seriously. This is an educational movement that should unify people around the notion of, the, of a radical democracy and how that democracy is being attacked and what the consequences are for the children of even those people who basically want to destroy education. Do you want your children to be stupid? Do you want your, your, your children not to be able to deal with the, the conditions that may take away Social Security in the future? Do you want your children to find themselves in a society in which every problem is criminalized and the state eliminates the social state for the punishing state and puts people in jail for being poor or for not paying debts or for not passing a certain test or for not being able to prove that they're patriotic enough? I mean, the consequences are severe. We don't talk about the consequences of this stuff in terms of the nitty gritty of people's everyday lives. It's one of the reasons the Republican fascist party right now doesn't want to talk about Social Security or cutting Medicare, Medicaid, because they know what that means. They know that that reaches into the pockets of people's lives and it's going to affect their lives dramatically. 
that kind of savagery they don't want to admit to. But it's precisely that kind of savagery that's going to be linked to a whole range of issues and assaults. This is an assault not simply on justice. It's an assault on human dignity. It's an assault on human agency. It's an assault on the ability of people to strive for a better life. It's an assault on the future. They have canceled out the future and immobilized it in the past and made it appear as it's the only present that's possible. We're speaking the day after the State of the Union address. Did you watch that or listen to it? Yeah, I did listen to parts of it, yeah. I don't believe in false optimism, and I, and, I, and I don't believe in balance, and I don't believe in not naming evil, and I don't believe in simply incremental reforms. So I don't take Biden very seriously. I mean, Biden's not a bad man. He's a centrist. And I think in some ways, while he's better, certainly, than Barack Obama, he's fighting fascism. He names it as semi-fascism, a creeping fascism, but he doesn't do enough to mobilize people around the threat. And he has the most powerful office in the United States. And the issue is not to say, can I work with my Republican Nazis? The issue is, how do we banish them from ever holding office again? How do we prevent movements like this from rising? How do we make people aware of what might be taken away from them that will make this democracy, alleged democracy, even worse than it already is? Instead, we have to listen to people like Marjorie Taylor Greene exhibiting the kind of behavior that I associate with the brown shirts and the thugs in Nazi Germany, or the stormtroopers that were sent out under Pinochet to make people disappear, put them in jail and torture them. That's what we're facing. And when a speech, I hear a speech addressing that, I'll be a lot happier. In the meanwhile, we have to work with whatever historical circumstance we find ourselves in. And as an example, in back to Florida, let's say you're a teacher and You've got the Stop Woke Act, and all it takes is one parent to report you, and you might, as you mentioned before, be prosecuted for a felony. And this leads to what you have written about, the the tendency towards self-censorship. How would you suggest such a person, such a teacher, mindful of the crisis we're in, how does he or she work? I think the first thing you do is stop individualizing the problem. It's not about a teacher who lives in fear, who basically uh, may not be able to teach something she believes in because she might go to jail. It's about mobilizing other teachers and others outside of the schools to basically engage in direct action and shut the school down, shut it down. I'm not trying to be glib. I mean, I think that we're in a period where you have to think about direct collective action. If these are the the people who work in the docks, they could shut that country down in, in five minutes. And all of a sudden, you'd see a massive rethinking of the forces that made that necessary. I think as long as we individualize this problem and don't view it as part of a larger attack on democracy and education and teachers themselves, we're in trouble. Teachers can't just close the door and hope that nobody finds out what they're doing or sneak a book in here and there. This is about policy. This is about power. It's not about individual actions, and it shouldn't be relegated to individual fears. Those fears should mobilize a larger vision in which people are going to have to exercise civic courage, take a chance, mobilize their unions, talk to other people, get in the streets, align themselves with larger social movements, connect so as to make visible what the exact nature of this evil is. And until we do that, they'll be in trouble. They'll be isolated and they'll be ineffective. In France, 
The people are in the streets for days now over the efforts to change their equivalent of Social Security. In Britain, strikes are happening with the railway workers there. We've seen numerous efforts to organize places like Amazon and Starbucks and things like that. And we have talked in the past, Henry, where teachers were mobilizing, but it was mostly for better working conditions and higher pay. But in places you wouldn't necessarily expect, and I'm talking like four years ago or so, Arkansas and and states like that, I can totally see your point about that being an important step, but where would that come from? I guess that would come from the grassroots up. What what do you think? I think it has to operate on two levels. I think at one level, we have to have the grassroots force the unions into actions that they because they become so so conservative into often not taking. And we saw that this year. A number of teachers went on strike in spite of what their unions said and they won. And I think that we have two major educational unions in this country. And it seems to me they've got to be pushed. They've got to become more radical. And at the same time, the grassroots has to constantly put pressure on these organizations to step in line and to be able to face the challenge that teachers are facing, which is a dire challenge in which they're being de-skilled, they're being controlled, they're being exploited, and they're being enlisted into a fascist system that basically will have repercussions years down the road. I think you're right. The good news is that teachers are not just organizing around interest around higher pays and better working conditions. The, the goals are larger, and they get it. And I think this is a very promising moment that could actually unite educators all across the United States in terms of what teaching is about, what education means, and what's at stake for the larger society. All of a sudden, we're talking about principles that in some way speak to something larger than the specific interest that individual teachers might have in a particular locality. All of a sudden, the grand nature of education and the principles that should be fought for in making it central to politics itself is beginning to emerge along with more union strength and more union resistance. And I think that's a good sign. I mean, I think that's that offers some hope for the future in terms of the enormous danger and emergency that we now find ourselves in in the age of a, a massive insur- massive insurrections. Insurrections run both ways. They come from the bottom and they come from the top. And I want to believe that the insurrection we're seeing at the top is as dangerous as it is, has to be matched by an insurrection at the bottom, an insurrection, what I call a movement for insurrectional democracy. Henry Giroux, we're just about out of time. Is there something you want to tell our listeners that we didn't get to in this interview? I think that what I would say is don't give up hope that there's always resistance in the face of domination. I think that the nature of the problem is becoming more extreme and more clear, that we have to exercise civic courage. We have to fight for a future that doesn't imitate the present. And we have to do it collectively and we have to do it together and we have to believe in ourselves and we have to believe in civic courage and we have to believe that these fights are worth doing because there's too much at stake. One final question, Henry. Are you about to publish another book or are you working on a book now? I have a book that just came out. It's a book called Insurrections, Education in the Age of Counter-Revolutionary Politics. I love this book. It basically addresses all of the questions I hope that you ask today, Joy. 
Well, Henry Zhu, thank you so much for joining us again on Forthright Radio. I can't tell you how much we appreciate your work. Okay, Joy. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. You have just heard a conversation with Paolo Freire, Distinguished Scholar in Critical Pedagogy and Chair for Scholarship in the Public Interest at McMaster University, Henry Giroux. His latest book is Insurrections, Education in an Age of Counter-Revolutionary Politics, just published by Bloomsbury Press. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. In the time remaining, excerpts from recent article from The Guardian of February 6, 2023, headlined, What is Behind Ron DeSantis's Stop Woke Act by Cass Mudd, the Stanley Wade Shelton UGAF professor in the School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Georgia. In addition to his Stop Woke, Wrongs to Our Kids and Employees Act, which prohibits educational institutions and businesses from teaching students and employees anything that would cause anyone to, quote, feel guilt, anguish, or any form of psychological distress, end of quote, due to their race, color, sex, or national origin, he has barred University of Florida professors from giving evidence against the state's voting law, claim that professors at public universities have no right to freedom of speech, and organizing a, quote, hostile takeover, end quote, of the New College of Florida, one of the best liberal arts colleges in the country. But he's far from the only Republican politicians to attack the education system. UCLA Law School's CRT Forward Tracking Project has tracked 567 anti-critical race theory efforts introduced at the local, state, and federal levels. According to the World Population Review, there are currently seven states that have banned CRT, while another 16 states are in the process of banning it. That constitutes almost all states with a Republican governor. Both legal professionals and laypersons have noted that, quote, the bills are so vaguely written that it's unclear what they will affirmatively cover, end quote. This is not because of incompetence or oversight, but by design. The vagueness serves at least two goals. First and foremost, it makes the laws hard to interpret, which leads those targeted, from teachers to principals, to be extra cautious. Second, the vagueness provides deniability both to the courts and to more moderate supporters. In fact, the prime goal is not for the state to censor teachers in schools, but for them to self-censor. That is why it is only a minor setback when a Florida judge struck down the Stop Woke law, calling it, quote, positively dystopian. Although most of the current laws are targeting public institutions in Republican-controlled states, they are part of a national agenda. Make no mistake, university administrators will not risk losing millions of federal funding for a gender or race class, not even at the private Ivy Leagues in solidly blue states. 
The recent Dobbs ruling has shown once again that states' rights are not a Republican principle, but a defensive and temporal strategy to fight off the federal state until they have reestablished federal power themselves. We cannot expect individual schools and teachers to fight this battle alone. We also shouldn't expect the educational establishment to stand up for academic freedom, as was made clear by the recent decision of the College Board, which stripped down its AP curriculum for African American studies to appease DeSantis. To counter the highly organized conservative attack, we need a concerted and integrated campaign from all individuals and organizations that support academic freedom and liberal democracy, from the AAUP to the ACLU, and we need it sooner rather than later, as the damage is already being done. One in four of all teachers across the country have already altered their lesson plans due to anti-CRT laws. After all, as Orwell has taught us, how we see the past determines our future. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.